Today we want to continue our study of the Olivet Discourse. And we're going to start with this. You're probably familiar with the story of uh, the ten virgins. Five did not have oil for their lamps and so forth. That's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to start with this premise and we're going to carry this through. It is necessary to understand the components of a Galilean wedding in order to understand the parable of the ten virgins. Now, you, you can miss some of the customs and such and still pretty much interpret the parable correctly. But really get the full impact of it. You really need to understand the components of a Galilean wedding. Now, Galilean meaning from the region of Galilee in the north, up above Judea, uh, near in and around the Sea of Galilee. Jesus grew up in Nazareth, which was right next door to Cana. If you remember the story in John 2 about turning the water into wine, that was a marriage feast in Cana. The particular customs of the Galileans in regard to uh, weddings and marriage from the beginning was just a, a little bit different than even the Jewish people that lived in Judea in the south. And we will talk about that in a few minutes. Now, last week I said if you wanted to prepare for today's lesson, you could watch the documentary entitled Before the Wrath. And I told you it was for rent on Prime Video and free on, and free on Pure Flix. I watched it probably a year ago or more. And so I was confident in what it was going to be. And I, I saw it on Prime Video. I saw it on Pure Flix. So I went home last Sunday in the afternoon uh, just to preview it again. And it didn't look right. And uh, what it was is that all the information that pertinent to what we're discussing is more or less pushed back to the end of the video. And I kept fast forwarding and fast forwarding and trying to find it. And I didn't see it. And I gave up too soon. And I thought, this must be some sort of, uh, uh, you know, a follow-up or something. And that's what led to my post on the app. But uh, I thought I was wrong, but I wasn't. That's always pleasant to know. <laughs> the problem is, what really threw me is I have near-perfect recall. But only if I ask my wife. <laughs> and then I forgot. Because she looked at it and she said, it's the same. And I argued with her, no, it's not, no, it's not. I've looked at it already and she kept telling me the same. Finally, I give up. Find out she's right, as always. Uh, uh, a couple other you folks uh, put on the app also, a couple other sources I did not have. The Hoopla app, which I think it's free. I, I actually got the app. I never got my, you have to have a library card, so I never got that far. But then I found out, you know, I had it right to start with. Anyway, but it's, uh, you get it on Hoopla, you have a library card. And uh, evidently on something called the Real Life Network app. I'm unfamiliar with that. It's uh, a church in California. They just started a network. All right. All right. 
So I appreciate these extra comments that came in. So it tells me y'all were looking for it, and hopefully uh, you found it. If you found it, and if you watched it, please don't go to sleep in the next 30 minutes. Okay? <laughs> That, that's what my students do. If they've seen the movie, they don't, they don't, they're not interested in seeing it in print. So uh, please try to stay awake. But I really believe that, and I thought this would be the case, if you saw the documentary first, it would really help you digest what we're going to have to go through uh, pretty quickly. And it really helps to see it, act it out, and picture Okay, so that's where we're at. So let's talk about the Galilean wedding customs. Remember, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, which was in Galilee. He was a Galilean as far as, you know, where he lived all his life, up until he started his ministry. Uh, the, the, the wedding customs in Nazareth, same as the wedding customs in Canaan, same as the wedding customs in Capernaum, or wherever you might be there in Galilee. So what were they? Well, first of all, the father would choose the bride. I actually have some uh, verses to pass out for folks to look up. Uh, so we'll do that while I'm talking. So raise your hand if you'd like to read one. Uh, these were arranged marriages in those days. Some of us parents and grandparents wish that that was still a tradition sometimes, perhaps. Uh, the father of the groom we get together the father of the bride, and this would be something that was decided on and arranged, and uh, the father would choose the bride, uh, looking at it from the, the groom's perspective. Okay, I got three more. Oh, sorry. Then came a covenant of marriage. Now, there might be some time lapse between this and this. Sometimes the brides were promised in marriage or it was arranged, you know, kind of not, not officially or legally yet when they were quite young. So there may have been some time lapse, but eventually it come to a point where there would be a covenant of marriage before multiple witnesses. So the two families would meet in a public place and there would be a written document, contract, covenant, that explained everything that was going to be entered into and so forth. And there would be multiple witnesses there to make it official. I, I don't think they did anything like sign as witnesses on something. They just were there, you know, be a witness to the proceedings. And that, that made it official in their, their customs. Now, what we have to remember here is that, in fact, the bride did have a choice in this. The whole thing was arranged, the covenant was made, they met at this point, but the bride could opt out. The bride had to consent. So it's not quite as bad as it might seem to us here in our modern day mindset. So the bride had to consent to the marriage by drinking from a cup of joy offered to her by the bridegroom. I think this was after the contract was presented and read and the witnesses were there. By the way, if you want to follow along on your handout, you may, but I'm giving you exactly here what's on there. So I, I didn't put in a lot of blanks, in the blank there's three, because I just wanted to just sit back and just, just soak this in. This is pretty, uh, this is pretty amazing. 
So it, at some point then, after the contract was read, the groom would pour into a cup. Uh, I, it might have been a special cup, uh, perhaps, I, I'm sure it was. But he would offer it to the groom, or to the bride. And she would have two choices, to drink or to hand it back to him. And if she drank of it, that was acceptance. She handed it back, and everything was off at that, at that point. If she did indeed drink from the cup of joy, the groom then would take it back, the same cup, still with wine remaining in it, and he would take a drink as well. And then he would say this, this is word for word, uh, pretty much I think what was on the, the documentary, I got another source, but it's pretty much this, you, you are now consecrated to me by the laws of Moses, I think. What I quoted may have left a few words out there. You are not consecrated to me by the laws of Moses. And at the end he says, and I will not drink from this cup again until I drink it with you in my father's house. Does that sound familiar? Wow. Yeah. I, I did not realize until the last year or so that this was what was the practice and this is what they said. Keep that in mind. And compare Matthew 26, 29 to what Jesus said to his disciples on the Last Supper. That's what we're talking about. Who has that one? Matthew 26, 29. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it too with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus, after the Passover meal was over, took the cup and instituted the, the Lord's Supper or the communion, whatever you want to call it, uh, one of the ordinances of the church, the one that we partake of and practice frequently. And after he shared the cup with them, this is what he said, Matthew 26, 29, which echoes exactly what the groom said to the bride in the Galilean wedding ceremony. He would not drink again from that cup until they drank it together in his father's house. Now that may sound strange, but we're going to, you're going to see the connection. But let's move on for the moment. A negotiated price was paid for the bride's, paid to the bride's father. I think this, this there would be a year of Separation after they had this public ceremony and the covenant was accepted. We call it the betrothal period, where she went home to live with her folks, and the, the groom went back to his father's house, and he built on a room in his father's house for he and his new bride. They would they were separated. It was it, it's roughly roughly uh, equivalent to an engagement period. It was more legally binding, but, but that was uh, the situation. So he went back to his father's house, prepared a room during this time. Now the bride was busy too. She was finding material, constructing her wedding garments and the bridesmaid stuff and all those things as well. Now let's compare Again, what Jesus said on the same night that he 
instituted the ordinance of communion on the same night, the night before his crucifixion, the evening before his arrest, late at night, he said these words in John 14, verses 1 to 3. Who's got that one? Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He said, I'm going away. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Sound familiar to what we just did? Connects. The groom went away, prepared a place, a dwelling place. Then he comes back to get his bride. This is what we're going to see in a moment. By the way, the negotiated price, it wasn't so much buying and selling a person, but you know, I mentioned the betrothal period was more legally binding. She literally was considered the wife at that point. <coughs> so her upkeep, her support should come from the groom. That's why the price was paid <coughs> to her father. It was, it was also kind of, you know, uh, An insurance policy, so to speak, you know. And they couldn't say you have, you know, the group had abilities, duties, whatever. Okay. A period of separation began when he builds the house. We compare John 14, 3. Let's move on. Once the room was ready, the groom didn't just take off to get his bride. They didn't meet at a church and walk down an aisle. You know, nothing like what we do. But when the room is ready, and the, the, the feast is ready, the groom goes to get his bride. What did Jesus say? If I go away, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. But there was still one delay left. He did not go to retrieve his bride until his father told him to go. Nobody knew. The groom didn't know. The bride didn't know. Nobody knew. It was kept entirely secret to the father when that command would come to go and get your bride. Now let's compare what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. We already read this and we've been over it. So Jesus is answering the question in Matthew 24. You know, what will be the sign of your coming and, and all that such? And so He's given them all this prophetic information we've already been over. But he says in 24:36, nobody knows when but my father. 
begin to get the picture that God the Father, Jesus Christ the groom, the church the bride. Now, by the way, I just realized this morning I did not include any references in the scripture that refers to the church as being the bride of Christ. So it's not on screen, so you might want to take this down if you've got a pen, pencil there. Just write down three references, you can look them up later. 2 Corinthians 11, 2. Revelation 19, 7. And finally, Revelation 22, 17. That's 2 Corinthians 11, 2. Revelation 19, 7. Revelation 22, 17. All reference the church as the bride of Christ. Now, here was another unique aspect to the Galilean wedding customs, which evidently was not true in Judea and other parts of the, the world where Jewish people live. The announcement from the Father came in the middle of the night. We see that in the parable of the ten virgins. We're going to come to that in a minute. It's why they need oil for the lamp. I don't really know why it came in the middle of the night. Other than it's a picture of something. Uh, it, it is a picture of nothing else what the world will be like when he comes back. Everybody spiritually is asleep for the most part. Now, you know, we have the bride of Christ awaiting for the minority. But anyway, this announcement came when the father would come. When you saw this on the documentary, the father comes and wakes up the group. Go get your bride. At that point, the groom would sound a trumpet, which would wake the whole village, including the bride and her bridesmaids. Now, they didn't know when the trumpet was going to be blasted. So they would might have been asleep. And it would be impossible for the bride and the bridesmaids to jump up, get dressed, and everything. If they didn't, it would be just come and knock on the door. The trumpet blast proceeds the ceremony to her house to retrieve her. You ladies will appreciate the thoughtfulness in this. <laughs> the groom would sound the trumpet, waking the entire village, including the bride and her bridesmaids. The shofar, the ram's horn. It may well be that they actually continued to blow that shofar, maybe others, as they proceeded from the groom's residence to the bride's residence. So people would come out of their houses and uh, Maybe join the procession. Yes. What if there were multiple daughters in that same village? How would they know? Maybe they have no idea. Let's see which ones that are. Yeah. I think we just controlled it so they. I have no idea. I didn't think of it. You guys are amazing. I always get questions. 
I think I can maybe give a possible scenario. And it's not on screen, but from what I read, multiple sources, the betrothal period usually lasted a period of approximately one year. So I think it was pretty obvious to the brides and the bridesmaids whose time was pretty close. <laughs> and once they got the drone on the same day, yeah. they might have, the brides might have a calendar there with <laughs> Uh, okay, it's about a year. I think I better be ready. And uh, if somebody got betrothed a month later, they might not be quite as. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing. But I think that's probably the answer. Uh, they knew the general time frame, they did not know the day or the hour. And what happens if two got betrothed on the same day? I don't know. Don't you think he probably now compare how Paul describes the announcement of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. The shout, the voice of the archangel, and what? The trump. It's just uncanny how this falls in place. The groom and his male friends then would go through the streets to the bride's house, sounding the trumpet as they went, as many onlookers joined in the procession, probably. I mean, you know, it's, a, it's a big happening. The bride and her bridesmaids then, having on their wedding garments and carrying torches, would go out to meet the groom. I say torches because the King James wording of lamps. Makes us think they're carrying a little lamp, but uh, the word actually means a torch. You know what a torch is. A piece of wood, they wrap cloth around one end, it's soaked in oil and lit, and you carry it around for life. We've all, we've all seen that on, on some movie somewhere if we haven't seen it in person. This is why the oil was important. It's going to be important to the parable. And this is important. The bride and her bridesmaid, wearing their wedding garments and carrying food, would go out to meet the groom. The groom didn't come, open the door, come in, swoop up the bride and carry her out. She could hear the groom and the procession coming. So they would arise, they would get the, everything together, they'd get their torches lit, and they would come out of the house to meet the groom. So, uh, what happens at the rapture? The dead in Christ rise first. Then we which are left and remain are caught up to be with the Lord. We, we leave earth, we leave where we're at, and go to meet our coming of the Lord. Then the groom's friends would carry the bride back to the groom's house. This is what they referred to as flying the bride to the groom's house. It was a canopied, I can't even think what you call these things. Uh, there's a word for it, but suddenly it escapes me. Uh, the groom's uh, party, 
By the way, this is a modern day because that guy's wearing a wristwatch. <laughs> <laughs> but we all knew they didn't have cameras back then anyway, right? <laughs> so she would come out, she wouldn't have a seat, they would literally carry her back to the groom's residence. And it was, they called it flying the bride. You ever sing that old song, I'll Fly Away? <laughs> it sounds a little silly on I'll Fly Away, but not, no, 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 not so, not really. We will fly away, right? <clears throat> so look at 1 Thessalonians 4.17, where we caught up to meet them in the air. I already got ahead of myself, but let's read it anyway. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Amen. Then, upon arrival at the groom's house, all that are recognized as invited guests enter in, and the door is shut. <clears throat> the wedding feast or marriage supper followed. So let's compare Revelation 19 7 to 9. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arraigned in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is in righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Only those that are called in the marriage supper of the Lamb are those that are saved, that those that are part of the bride. Then it's interesting in Revelation, after, after the coming of the Lord Jesus at the end of the tribulation period, some references <coughs> the marriage feast. This, you remember John 2, Jesus is at the marriage feast. His mother Mary is there. His disciples there. They've been invited. They're part of the part of the recognized invited guests. And of course, the the groom's father runs out of wine for the feast at some point. And uh, Mary comes to Jesus basically and says, "Here's the situation." Now she didn't say do anything about the situation. She said, "Here's the situation." Why did she come to Jesus? She knew who he was. She also knew it was about time for him, having already disciples, that that become evident to other people. But she didn't tell him what to do. And he says, woman, what, what, what do I have to do with you? Now, woman was not a derogatory term. It's just a translation issue there. Um, and Mary, without saying another word, turns to the servants and says, whatever he says, do it. <laughs> At that point, he could have done nothing. But he, he, he performed his first miracle. That was at a wedding. So now let's look at the parable itself. Because now that we have digested all this, or at least it's vaguely there in our minds, and we've kind of put it all together, let's talk about the parable itself. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. 
First thing I want to point out to you, I probably, this is going to come later, but I don't want to miss it here. The kingdom of heaven. Does that ring any bells? Matthew 13. The parables of Matthew 13, we just studied before we come to Matthew 24 and 25. He repeatedly used the terms kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like. Now, in Matthew 13, where it says the kingdom of heaven is like such and such, whatever it may be in that parable, it's a form of the same word translated comparable right here. One's a noun. In Matthew, it's a noun in Matthew 13. This is a, a verb here. It's the same word. So, Everything we learned in Matthew 13 is applicable to this parable. Five of them, it says, were foolish and five were prudent. That means five were prepared, five were wise, they were ready to go. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. They, they took their torches to the bride's house, but didn't carry whatever it may have been, a jar with oil in it that they could dip the torch into. They didn't make preparations. Whether they thought they could borrow it or whether they thought they would, you know, well, you know, there's plenty of time, we'll get it. And they didn't, whatever. They didn't have it. But the prudent took oil in their flasks along with their lamps or torches. Now the bridegroom was delayed while the bridegroom was delayed, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. The, the call comes in the middle of the night. They don't stay up all night every night. You, you have the warning system. You, you, you have the announcement. Uh, but he hasn't come yet that evening, and they go to bed. But at midnight, there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. So... All those virgins arose and began, and actually says, and trimmed their lamps, which means they, if it was a previously wrapped fabric or whatever, they had to trim off the part that burned last time, make it nice, ready for the next, and then dip it in oil, and then it would be lit. So they all got up and trimmed their lamps. But the foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. Well, if you light a lamp, it's not sufficiently oiled, it's going to go out. But the prudent answered and said, No, there will not be enough for us, and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. Sounds a little harsh. Maybe. Why wouldn't they share? Well, because they all had to have enough light to get from the bride's house to the groom's house where they could be identified at night by the fact that they were carrying a torch, number one, and, it, and that they were properly attired and so forth, to actually be able to enter into the house. It's, it's midnight. I mean, it's after midnight. It's a wee hours of it, And there's people coming out of their houses here, and it's all mixed in. Uh, if the prudent ones had shared half of their oil with the others. How many of them may have made it to the house with any light left at all? Maybe none of them. That wouldn't work. 
So I mean, this was pretty practical. I wasn't just harsh. And they said, well, you know, you better go, you better go find somebody who has some oil you can buy. Now that's, I don't know how it was in those days, but in these days, good luck with that one, you know. While they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Once the door was shut, that was it. They came too late. They came and said, no doubt, but we were supposed to be here. We just ran out of oil. Doesn't matter. When the door shut, it shut. Evidently, they didn't. If you didn't show up in the wedding party when the bride came in with proper identification, you didn't go in. Later, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be only alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Right, any questions up to this point? No more hard ones I can't answer, but. <laughs> <laughs> any other, anything else that's like, something's not clear. Okay. <clears throat> By the way, I'll, I'll try to remember to go back and put those. Uh, Places up where you can go view the documentary if you have not done so and you want to go back and do that. Someone remind me. I still would talk about then the parable of the Denver. <laughs> the comparison. Remember it says ten virgins are comparable to. The kingdom of God is comparable to the ten virgins, the prudent and the, the foolish. Like. So the comparison here is that the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, the ten virgins described in the parable. Five were prepared for the bridegroom to come, the prudent. Five were not prepared, the foolish, as demonstrated by their lack of oil. Now, remember here two of the parables of Matthew 13. The parable of the sower and the parable of the wheat and the tares. In both cases, <coughs> in both cases, the kingdom of heaven contained those who professed to be believers, but they not they were they were not all truly believers. They were religious. Maybe they went to the church. Maybe they were even active in the church, but they didn't have it. They never by faith entered into a personal and saving relationship with Jesus. So there are professing believers and true believers. In the parable of the sower, one out of the four is mentioned there. One out of the four soils was the one, only one that bore fruit. The other, scorched and died, trampled, you know, burned, whatever, did not consist or did not persevere. Now you go to the parable of the wheat and tares. It's a different parable, but you find the same thing. In this period of time called the kingdom of heaven, which includes the church age, we'll give you a chart on that again in a minute. During this time of the kingdom of heaven, there will be both true and false people, true and false, true believers and false professors <laughs> that claim to be believers. The wheat and the real thing. The tares was a plant that looked like wheat until the harvest, 
And then it was obvious from the grain it was not wheat. Until the harvest, they couldn't tell. So that's why the landowner says, don't, don't go try to sort it now. You'll never get it right. Wait until they bear fruit, you'll know. So this, again, is the same thing in the parable of the ten virgins. Five truly believers and five false professors that get shut out of the wedding field. Question. Do you think there's any significance to the fact that it's five and five, they're like two and eight? <laughs> I really don't think there's any significance we should draw from that. But I don't know that I'm the final authority on that. Because yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you think of it as not that many actually getting great. And this kind of suggests half get, make it. And that to me seems like. Well, it's going to be a significant way. number that they think they're okay because they went to a church or got baptized or whatever. They're not going to be truly believers. But let's look at it this way the parable of the sower. Three out of four didn't. So there may be some significance in the five and five or the three out of four, and it's going to be a larger number than you would expect. I guess I would say it's probably not applicable if we're trying to specifically identify a person. That makes sense. I think that's what makes sense to my mind. Well, that's not that's not a happy thought, you know. But you got to realize too, in Conroe Bible Church, hopefully we don't have any false professors here. But over the years, pretty reasonable that that's going to happen in any church. But you look at the whole of Christendom out there. There's lots of churches and denominations and groups that are not even doctrinally in our in, in the camp of you know evangelicalism or uh, you know what would be Bible truth. So in those groups it'd be unlikely to find true believers. I mean in this group over here it'd be unlikely to find very many false professors over there. Maybe a large group but very few true believers. Where are we at? Members of the bride's party require both proper attire and their own torches to be identified and invited to the wedding supper. All bridesmaids, I already covered this, need freshly oiled torches that would last until they arrive at the groom's house, and each bridesmaid, having only a half supply of oil, would have left them all outside, making the sharing of oil a worthless solution. That's just some additional food for thought. Help us understand the parable. Those who had to go purchase oil were not there to enter before the door was shut, so they were not qualified to enter. When the moment comes, Jesus comes for his church, those that are not ready, they don't go. Now, please understand. It doesn't mean they were, they're going to be eternally lost necessarily because there's lots of people. There'll be millions of people saved after the rapture. But they're going to have to endure the tribulation too because they weren't ready. And there'll be people that 
on the day of the rapture miss it because they weren't ready and they'll get saved later and some will miss it and they'll never get saved. But we don't know. This, this is not... There, there are some verses in First Thessalonians that, uh, that some people interpret to mean that the strong delusion that God sends up on the earth will mean that if you had an opportunity before the rapture that you'll not get saved after. But that scripture really doesn't say that. That's an extrapolation. Uh, I'm sure a lot of those who are not ready, their false professors, will fall under the delusion that comes about. But that, that's going to come from their own choice of disbelief. But God's grace is going to be marvelously uh, available during the tribulation period. <clears throat> okay. The singular point. Remember parable? A parable is a comparison of two things. So they, they, in, in its essence has one point, and that is the comparison. We can't go off and, and, and try to uh, expand it into every, uh, you know, every direction. So the singular point of the parable is that preparation is necessary to be escorted to and allowed to enter the groom's house, which is the rapture of the church. I go and prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's what he said. Those prepared are those that have been saved by faith. Simple as that. Any questions? Now, so far, on this couple of fill-ins you've had, the first one is customs, and the second one is virgins. Miss those. So let's move on. The chart I promised you has not showed up <laughs> because I projected the wrong version. I had another version I inserted the chart, so, but you remember it. The kingdom of heaven begins with the church beginning. Death, burial, resurrection of Christ, the ascension, the beginning of the church. That's where the kingdom of heaven begins. And we know it ends at the end of the tribulation because the last couple of parables in Matthew 13 have to do with judgment of those that do not believe. So it encompasses all the church age plus the tribulation period. And so the, the parable of the virgins, uh, in a sense, does cover the same time period. And that's why those that missed the coming are shut out. Okay. Compare what Jesus said in the previous parable of the householder of the thief, Matthew 24, 44. Somebody have that one? Okay. I did not give that one out. I remember now. It says, therefore, you I also... Put it on screen right there. I can read it. It's right here. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you cannot expect. Yeah. Uh, thank you. For this reason, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think you will. Now, that came from what we studied last week, which is not a part of the parable of the ten virgins, but which connects with it. It's kind, of a, it's kind of a preview of it. Last week, what we're seeing in the parable this week. 
But we discussed this last week when it says you also must be ready. And I talked about how over the years, many times I've heard messages, sermons that will emphasize you got to be living a holy life and uh, you know, you've got to be, you know, so dedicated to the Lord that the Lord won't find you doing things you shouldn't do when he comes and you'll be embarrassed, you might lose your reward. And, and I mentioned this last week, pretty much every time I don't do something that I should do or I do do something I shouldn't do, I feel embarrassed, I have to confess that as sin. I mean, you, you have the same reality, right? So it's not that we just have to be careful what we're doing at the moment the rapture comes. And that's, that's the way we live our life as Christians. Being ready means having a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ through our own personal faith. So that then becomes the application, and we see this in verse 13 of Matthew 25, kind of echoes what we saw in Matthew 24, 44. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Don't, don't think, I've got plenty of time. I mean, I have heard that so many times over the years. I was speaking to somebody about their need of salvation, and they'll say, oh, i got plenty of time. Have you ever heard that one? How many of you have heard that one? Yeah. If you ever talk to very many people at all, you'll get that one. Nobody knows how much time you have. Whether it be the rapture or, you know, the moment of your death, it's unexpected, which happens to a lot of people, right? Okay. So, I lay application. It's the same application we had last week. But let's, let's think about the whole of what we just discussed. We all have folks that we care about, care for, family members, friends. We wonder about their salvation. Or maybe we pretty clear that they're not believers, right? And uh, it would be, it, in fact, it brings pain to our heart and soul to understand they're in that situation. And we certainly have the obligation, the privilege, to tell them about Jesus Christ and to warn them about what happens if you're not saved. And sometimes those people we care about are not even available for us to speak with. Maybe they live far away, and I, mean, I guess you can do it by email or on your cell phone, but uh, they're just not there every day for us to see and interact with. And in many cases, we've already tried, and they've just said, I'm not ready yet. Or they've said worse. I don't believe any of that stuff. But we still care about it. I want to suggest to you something, and I, it, just, it just occurred to my mind on my way here in the car. As my wife and I were discussing the, the application part of this. If you 
go through the epistles and you read the things that Paul said about prayer. He's always, or at least in, in several cases, he requested prayer that God would give him opportunity. He didn't just say, Lord, send somebody. Oh, yeah, that'd be fine. We can pray that prayer, and, and that's a good prayer to pray. But listen, sometimes we say, we say to ourselves, it's just so difficult to, to witness to somebody that I'm close to. That, that may well be true. I, I'm not going to deny that reality, which is true in many cases. However, the person that is most likely to get through to that person is the person that's close to them, rather than a stranger. Because they see your life, and they, they know your, of your faith, and your witness is powerful in that regard. And Paul was, Paul was always saying to the, the churches he wrote to, pray that God would give me an open door, pray that God would give me an opportunity. So can I suggest to you by way of a further application that can we put that on our prayers? I just pray for so-and-so's salvation, but pray specifically for an opportunity to speak with them. Now that opportunity might not just be I happen to, you know, they happen to come to my house today. That might be the opportunity. But the opportunity might be more specific in the sense that that you were there on the day when the Spirit of God has already prepared them and convicted them. Or they're in some, they're in some crisis mode. And you can sh share with them not only uh, just from a heart of I care about your salvation, but you, know, you need to look to Jesus. This is an example of it. There's all sorts of nuances of opportunity. Some are greater opportunities than others. So maybe we can pray for opportunity. And for us to be at the right spot, the right moment, where that opportunity exists. That might be the only clue we have to it. Anybody else have a question? Or I just had an have observation. Just an observation. The one before it was where Jesus told the uh, servant to feed the household. And in this one, the bride, obviously these were all the bride's friends. Like she wanted all 10 with her at her wedding. So it's people that we know. So maybe our responsibility is to feed the household. I think you hit the nail on the head. Yes. Our first responsibility is our household. The first responsibility is our family and our close friends and, and this is what we so often miss we so many times we find it easier to go talk to a total stranger than the person we care about so much and again i don't know why and wherefore that i know it's reality in many cases but that's we're the, in the we have that opportunity there more than anybody else in the world is going to have that opportunity I think the sadness is the fact that the bride didn't know the situation of her bridesmaids. The people she wanted with her, the bride herself, didn't realize they weren't ready. Yeah. Mm -hmm. True. Mm -hmm. Very true.
Yeah, I was interested in this model for marriage. You know, someday Josh may want to consider a model, you know. <laughs> but, you know, it became a custom, it seems to me, because of things prior, maybe back to Moses' day. And was that a model God gave Moses for the people? I don't know, I haven't read anything like that, but I just wondered what you thought about how that ended up there. Seems like a lot better model than two 16-year-olds going to the Justice of Peace on a whim. <laughs> uh, I agree. <laughs> but, uh, we're not living under the laws of Moses and thinking, you know, things have changed. Doesn't mean that marriage is any less important or any less sacred. Uh, what keeps coming back to my mind is how God's sovereignty played into this whole model that he put up here that pictures the, the bride of Christ and the coming Lord. Even in Judea and others, other Jews of here, they didn't have that unexpected, unannounced, not know the day part. They, they had a day. I may not have pointed this out, but this is what I understand. Only in Galilee was it the Father who kept the information to himself and then revealed it as a surprise. I think there's a practical side too that if every young man had to work a whole year to build a room for this gal, would would that uh, change his mind? It might. I think a uh, of a modern way of arranging um, a marriage is when our children are babies or infants, and we begin praying for them and their future husband throughout their whole life and then in that way God is sovereign preparing both for the marriage and I think that's one of the best ways to sometimes I know that the uh, bride chooses a husband that we may not agree with <laughs> we would not have chosen but the marriage works Right. Yeah, very true. Yeah. Thank you for that observation. Yes. Anybody else want to add some information? We're actually five minutes early. Uh, we'll find some way to fill that time up, right? <laughs>